When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From having to bribe Thai officials and liaising with royalty to something she did in a Parisian strip club with a celebrity and seeing this in her bathroom one night in Indonesia. I see something sort of moving along the wall. It takes me a second to register what it is, and all of a sudden I see the python head peep over the other side. Our next guest has enough crazy life stories to fill an entire book. Welcome to the Real Tall Tales podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Cassandra Young. And I'm Munir McJohnny. And before we get started, if you've liked any of our episodes, if you've enjoyed listening, would you please do us a huge favor and leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts? It helps us out by letting others know that this content is actually worth listening to. So thank you in advance. Now let's get into it. So Laura and I met actually through someone that I consider a godmother, her second mom. And the entire time that I've known Laura, she's always just been traveling and always kind of lived outside the United States. She's worked and lived across the U.S., the Middle East, Europe, South Asia and Latin America, doing everything from cleaning toilets to liaising with heads of states and royal families. But the story that I really want to get into and understand is how do you respond when you wake up to a python in the bathroom. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely a start. Yeah, I had been living in Indonesia for almost a year, and I was moving houses. And so some friends of mine had been running this house. They were leaving early. I was like, I had like two weeks where I didn't have somewhere to live. And they were like, why don't you just stay in our house? And then you don't have to like figure all this out. So it was a great, it was on the edge of the rice field. So you get a lot of Mm. wildlife there. You know, the rats tend to congregate there and therefore the snakes tend to congregate there. Uh So I was staying in the house by myself at the time. I'd taken my contacts out. I was very cozy in bed and had to go to the bathroom. And in Indonesia, you have sort of like indoor outdoor bathrooms. Mm -hmm. So there's technically a wall, but there's no ceiling. So I'm, you know, I'm going to go pee at two o'clock in the morning. You got to go. You got to go. You got to go. You know, I didn't put my glasses on because I was like, this is a quick trip. I can see the I've toilet. I've done this before. Yeah. <laughs> far, I mean, how far we're away is the toilet? 12 feet. Okay. Oh, okay. We're not going far. Yeah. Um, it's not like a midnight hike through right. a rice field. <laughs> it was not. It was attached to the bedroom. Oh, um, okay. So it was like several steps. Um, and so I sit down on the toilet and I'm like, oh, that's weird. The shower is right in front of me. I was like, man, all my shampoo and my conditioner, everything's been knocked over. I was like, huh, maybe it got windy. I don't know. And then Isn't that weird? I would literally do the same. It could all be messed up. And I'd be like, "Mm, there must be some reason. (laughs) Yeah. Everything has been moved around. Right. No, I was just like, eh, whatever. I wasn't paying attention. And then all of a sudden I see something like sliding over the wall. And oh shit was my first reaction. Yeah. What the fuck is that? I didn't know And I'm know assuming what it was. there's no light in this bathroom, right? I didn't have the lights on. No, it was literally like, you know, you wander yeah, to the you bathroom got, like, in the middle right. of the night. Yeah. yeah. So I see something sort of moving along the wall and it takes me a second to register what it is. And all of a sudden I see the python head peep over the other side because it was just sort of the body of it before. And it stares at me and I'm like midstream, <laughs> if I could say that. And just like, oh shit. Like, I have two options right now. I can sit here and continue peeing and possibly die. 
Or I just pee into my bedroom. Right. And that's just what happened. I mean, I'd probably pee my pants if I saw Python anyway. So. I, exactly. So it was actually in the right spot yeah, for right, it. Yeah, right, yeah. So I made the executive decision just to be still as if it were a dinosaur, like <laughs> a raptor. Yeah. And I was like, if I don't move, it cannot see me. Uh, yeah. And so I literally just sat there for what seemed like an eternity. I'm sure it was two minutes. But it eventually just looked at me, stared at me for a little while, I guess recognized that it wasn't a threat, and then just turned and sort of slid the rest of its body down the wall on the other side. So um, out of the bathroom. Out of the bathroom. If it had come into um, the bathroom. And then I was just like, I mean, this was probably at 2 o'clock in the morning. I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. And then that was the last night I stayed in that house. But it was funny because I told my landlord the next day, I was like, oh my God, why on? There was a python in the bathroom. And he was like, oh yeah, uh-huh. And I was like, no, but it was really close to me. And he was like, okay, all right. Like, that was and not an issue. Just- yeah, it was like, I don't know what your problem is, wow. white lady. And I was just like, oh. Okay. My sister did Peace Corps and she was in Africa and they would have outdoor toilets separate from the house. And she told me, you know what a camel spider is? Like yeah, the really massive. huge oh. spiders. And their exoskeleton is so hard that you can't really smash them with your hand. <gasps> so it'd be pitch black. And she had a headlamp. But the problem is these things are attracted to light and they can reach oh. crazy speeds, like faster than a human. No. So she was in the bathroom sitting and she looked up and then there's one right above her. And so she ran and it chased her. She got into the house. And she had to like try to hit it and it didn't do anything. So she had to call her sister who lived there, her um, house sister, to get her to come in. And of course, she's like, oh, whatever, and takes her shoe and just bangs it and walks off like it's not a big deal. But you're like, this is not really normal. This is not right. (laughs) I expect a roach or maybe a daddy long legs. And even then I flip out. I had all sorts of wild animals in my house when I was in Indonesia. I remember one time I came home and my neighbor had roosters and chickens and I came home and... The rooster was like hanging out on my desk. I was just like, what is my life right now? Like, what is happening? <laughs> I'd much prefer a but, rooster over yeah. a python, not even yeah. just a garden snake. That, yeah. Do you that know how long wild. it was? I tell everyone, in my mind, it was 10 feet long. And I, I don't feel it. like that was yeah, a huge, huge exaggeration. Yeah. At the time, there was in Indonesia, there was this big story, I think it was in Java, where a python had eaten an entire human being. What? And I think that was just in the news like two weeks later. So I was especially paranoid about this in the moment. Um, I think I recall that story. I also wondered how the python got the human being still enough. Mm. But like once it gets you. Who knows? Who oh, knows? I don't, I don't ever want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we weren't reading that about you. Yeah, because yeah. they can swallow big things like that. Like they just I mean, open wide and adjust. I feel like a big enough python. I'm only 5'4". Like, you know, who knows? So that's just one of many insane stories of your life. So I would love to play a little game with you if you're willing. I would love to. We're going to say some words, and then you tell us the story behind those words. Okay. Okay. So first, let's start with Thai officials. I feel like this is a little bit incriminating, but um, (laughs) or a lot. I had been living in Thailand for about a year. I was living in the north of Thailand and I didn't have a visa really to be there for a year. So what I was doing was sort of coming in and out of the country as quite a few people do. I'm not saying that's right. I don't advocate it. I'm just telling my story. And the last time I had come back into the country, they had messed up the date on my stamp. I can't remember what it was. I think it was off by like two months. And I hadn't realized it until it was time for me to leave to come back for my grandmother's 90th birthday. And I think it was like a week before and I was like, oh shit, I'm going to be arrested. Like I had way overstayed. In Thailand. In Thailand. <laughs> no. so, not somewhere you want to be well, arrested. I don't know. Is it Broke Down Palace? I was palace? just about to say, <laughs> Broke Down Palace, just visions of that was like running through my head. So that movie like, with Claire Danes and who else was in it? Um, The brown haired actress. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. There you go. I'm sure she has a very 
esteemed career as a wonderful human being, but that's all I can remember of her right now. Those of you who don't know, Broke Down Palace is two girls who they get, I think drugs get planted on them unknowingly Mm. and they become drug mules and they get arrested. And so basically, long story short, they end up in a Thai prison together and it is not pretty. It doesn't end It makes Orange is the New Black look like a luxury hotel. Yes. That was what was going through my mind, essentially. (laughs) I was like, this is my future now because I didn't look at my passport. Which Um, is frustrating because you didn't technically do anything wrong. It was just the stamp. I also overstayed my stamp. So I (laughs) did do something wrong. (laughs) Okay. I was just trying. Yeah. Thank you, Cassie. It was exacerbated by this fact. So uh, first I went to the American consulate and they were like, oh, you have to go back to the border. Like, we cannot fix this for you. I was like, great. This will be a two-day trip that I don't have planned. And also I'm leaving in several days to go visit my 90-year-old grandmother. So I go back to the border and they're like, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to be arrested. And I was like, there's something we can do here most certainly. And so I cried as was the only thing I could think of to do. And and so the Thai guy was like, this is going to cost you a lot of money, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I will pay anything. And I remember thinking like, I will pay thousands of dollars not to go to the Thai or Burmese jail. And I remember it was something like, it's going to be $30, like US dollars. And I was just like, I remember thinking like, oh my God, I'm so relieved. But also trying to act like that was so much money because I didn't want them to like amp it up. Uh And I was like, $30? That's outrageous. We left three zeros off that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Austin Powers movie, one million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. I was like, oh my God, I'm outraged. So I think I had to give him and then also the official in Myanmar $30. And they took the stamp and they fudged it. I think they like crossed out the original stamp, took their stamp, turned back time, quite literally, stamped it so that it looked like I had just come through. And then um, I was able to fly out. But I remember the Thai official saying to me, he was just like, I mean, he was not having it and just was like, who is this person? And he was totally right to think that way. But he was just like, you know, what would happen if this was happening in your country, would your country be as forgiving to a Thai national who had overstayed their welcome like this? And I was like, no. They wouldn't. And I was just like, I am so ashamed on so for so many reasons right now. But (laughs) I was like, wow, thank you very much. I will never forget this. And thank you, Thai official, who is unnamed here because you saved my life. Yeah, you're like, no, they would not at all. But also, perhaps if I were in your position, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, things may be different. (laughs) It's funny. I went to Turkey for the first time ever a couple of years ago on an interfaith trip. Oh wow, yeah, with Nancy, with with, yeah, with our Our godmother, and we're on a trip with about thirty. 40 people of all different faiths and religions and I'm like helping co-lead this trip and I've been yelling at people to make sure that they check their passports check all the documents that we get because we do all the visas for them oh they spelled my name wrong on the visa and I didn't check until I went up to the gate agent I hand it to her and she's like these are two different people and I'm like what do you mean and she's like on your passport it's m-u-n-i-r on here, it's like M O O N E A R, and I no. was like, You're like someone spelled it phonetically. Oh my god! I'm surprised they were that strict about it because I know like there are many different ways to spell like Muhammad right, right, or. Yeah. So no, that was the funny Ahmed, thing, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I'm from India. I'll bribe somebody. We'll get this done. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It was a mix-up. How do I fix this? And I start pulling my wallet out and start pulling cash out because I'm traveling internationally. So I've got USD. Yeah, and. One of the other co-leaders comes up to me because she sees that I'm having problems. She goes, what's going on here? And now I've got all this attention on me. I'm like, shit, I can't even bribe somebody now to get in. And so I explained to the official, I'm like, I tell people my name is Moon Ear, Mm. like the moon in your ear. And that's what this person wrote 
for my name because it was an American agency we were using. I'm so sorry about this confusion. And she's like, please wait a moment. And she leaves and I'm like, shit, we've got a two week trip all over the place and I'm just stuck here and I've got to like now get a flight back to the US and I can't leave this trip. Because some idiot doesn't know how to like look up a name or double check a spell. Also, some idiot named Munir didn't double check his. I I mean, I've been there. Oh my God. And I'm so good about double checking stuff. And she came back with like another official and I was like, crap, I just hope I don't get like arrested or something. And they're like, hey, no problem. We reprinted this for you. Here you go. And I'm like, wait, that's it? No bribery? No, nothing. No Just let me through. And that's what I was thinking. Like if we were in the US or any of these other they, you know, there's no way you're getting through. They're like, ah, it's fine. We understand. It's a problem. I got stopped in the States and not like, for those of you listening, like I'm a white woman with an American <laughs> accent. Like, I'm actually an immigrant as well from the UK. Well, immigrant. But my point is for all intents and purposes, I blend right in. Right. And my middle name is Louise. And for some reason on my boarding passes, it always cuts off the E. Oh. It's Lewis every time. And it didn't match my That's ID. So and they funny. gave me so much grief over it. And I was like, it's one letter. Like, clearly everything else matches up. And so, like, on one hand, I'm really glad for the, you know, security in place and that they're paying attention. But when it happens to you, you're like, can you please just let it slide? Like, this is clearly a non-issue. so funny. All right. Ready for the next word? I'm ready. Let's do it. Parisian strip club. (laughs) Okay. So, I studied in Paris when I was in university. And I had an interesting sort of group of friends when I was there, one of whom's father is a very prominent heart surgeon. So we would go out to the clubs. We were young. We were in our 20s. And at a certain point, the clubs would close. And that's when you went to this one particular strip club because it was open late. And I remember one night we had gone out and I had to make a very important phone call before we walked into this strip club at two o'clock in the morning. I'm sure it was very critical. <laughs> so I told my friends to go ahead and I was just like, hey, y'all, I'll meet you inside. And when I finished my important phone call, I walked in and was kind of just like walking through. And then my friend um, Kat was like, hey, Laura, come over here. I'd like to introduce you to someone. So I'm like, okay, who's whatever. I'm not really thinking too much about it. And she says, Laura, I'd like to introduce you to famous 80s pop star. And I'm just like, oh, I don't even know what to say to you and was totally starstruck and 20 and drunk at two o'clock in the morning. And so, but he was very gracious and very kind. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's go to the back room. And I was like, okay, great. I don't know what's <laughs> happening here, but let's, I'm going with it. So Life is great. When you're drunk and it's 2 a.m., it's very easy to follow blindly. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, this sounds like a wonderful opportunity. Although I'm going to be honest, even if I were sober, I'd be like, what's in the back room? Yeah. And go anyway. <laughs> you <laughs> like, don't say like no. 3 p.m. No. I'm like, you're going somewhere yeah. with a celebrity? I want to <laughs> yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. You don't say no to an 80s pop star. Yeah. No, you don't say no to an 80s pop star. And he was very nice. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I don't say very no to nice. anyone above the Z-list. <laughs> I was like, oh, someone wants to hang out with me. Great. So we went and we all sit around this table and there's like a curtain that they wrap around the table so no one can see what's going on. And I just thought we were going to have a lovely, quiet conversation. And then someone... Um, at 2 a.m. drunk. At 2 o'clock. I mean, <laughs> I thought we were going to pray. Yeah, just Did you want to join hands? Go around and say what we're thankful right. for. So yeah, someone just like, you know, lays out a large amount of cocaine. And I'm like, oh, right. That's so what happens clueless. in the Yeah. <laughs> I think that was actually the night I'm just remembering this. There was also several other movie stars who were surely in town filming something that we ended up hanging out with as well. But I'm going to refrain from naming names. I don't want to. Yeah, I'm going to protect the guilty in myself. (laughs) All right. Next one. Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. So I went to go work in Abu Dhabi for about a year, year and a half. 
I worked for a arts nonprofit there and I worked as the special assistant to the founder and artistic director. And she was not princess level, but like just a level below. She was a her excellency technically. So I was doing a lot of liaising with different royal families there, with all of the ambassadors, the embassies in the region, did a lot of event planning, um, a lot of things that I had no training for coming from Atlanta and working in the art scene here. So I accepted the job without ever having been in the Middle East. Oh, wow. I remember just being like, this will be cool. I'm pretty open to new opportunities. I was like, I need a change. This will be great. How old were you when you took the job? Almost 30. I was 29. That does sound like an incredible, like, honestly, if I didn't have the job that I have now, I would totally have been down for something like that. Yeah, it sounded very cool and it ended up being very cool, but there was a lot of challenges that I didn't foresee because it's one of those things where it's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. But so I remember I flew over there after a series of conversations we had done over Skype. It was a fairly intensive interview process, but I never actually had my feet on the ground there. So I fly over there. I think I had something like six hours to sort of collect myself and honestly sleep. It was a really long flight. And then one of my colleagues comes and picks me up and she's like, okay, so we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Here's the agenda. Like, here's your schedule for the next few days. And it was really just like jump right in. And on my first day, I remember I showed up at my boss's house where many of the meetings took place. We jumped into a Rolls Royce, which was my first time in a Rolls Royce. And we took Christo, the contemporary artist who's done like major works throughout the world. He has been trying to do a project in Abu Dhabi for several years. And part of that involves courting the aristocracy there. So we escorted him, took him to one of the Sheikah's palaces. And that was exceptional for me because I'd never been in a palace before. Um, I mean, it's exceptional on many levels. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, here's my first day on the job. I'm in the Middle East. I don't speak the language. Even going to your boss. I, when I started this other job, I have one of my first meetings was at my boss's house. And I was like, this, I came from more of a corporate setting. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is weird. It's awesome. But I don't know how to act because this is your personal space. And I feel like I shouldn't be in it. Yes. So that for you to go to that, to the Rolls Royce, to Cristo, to the palace. It was very sort of otherworldly. So I remember walking into the palace and it was exceptional because princesses, they are usually, you don't meet with males. It's very still segregated socially. Like men and women are not congregating and socializing in the same way. So areas. if you were a man, would you have met with the princes? Exactly. Okay, gotcha. um, but this particular princess had quite a bit of power in the arts. And so we were able to negotiate his presence there. So it was wonderful. But I was just looking around at all the food. I was like, there's so much food here and there's like 10 of us. Why? But it's just, you know, not part of the world. It's very welcoming. You have like an entire spread. And I remember one of the helpers came around sort of serving me Arabic tea or Arabic coffee, rather, which is just like coffee with cardamom in it. And I didn't know what the practices were around that. So I just said, no, thank you. And I remember just everyone stared and looked at me and was like, why isn't she taking the coffee? Why isn't she taking the coffee? Like, what is happening? What is happening? And I was like, okay, great. I'll take it. I'll take it. That was the etiquette. Yeah. I was like, shit. Okay. Obviously, I just need to take the coffee. Navigating that's so difficult, especially country to country. I forget if it's Thailand or... Vietnam, but one of them is you have to refuse something three times and you have to offer mm-hmm. it three times before it's accepted as an actually like you don't want it. So you would have 
had to refuse yeah. the coffee. But you don't know that. And then in Japan, I think like if you're having tea, I want to say pointing the spout towards your mm. guests or away from your guests is rude because it implies that they're supposed to pour the tea. Mm-hmm. I have to look that one up to clarify it. But it's like I'm things that, with you. like you Sounds said right. earlier, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, it was very bizarre. And I was like, I don't want to make a faux pas, so I'm just going to do nothing. But that in and of itself that was so. the faux yeah. pas. Yeah, so it was just funny. I didn't have any sort of cultural training. You know, you, you would kind of think going over there as a Westerner, they'd be like, all right, day one, here's like some culture training. Yeah, here's what you need or, to yeah. do. But yeah, I just sort of wung it. And that's what I continue to do. So there's a lot of different sort of situations like that. Clearly that worked to figure out. out. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. I used to get in trouble in first and second grade because I would never look my teachers in the eye. So like uh, as a South Asian person, that's very disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And so you always look down. And so if I ever got in trouble or if I ever answered a question, I would never look them in the eye and they would always yell at me and be like, look at me in my face or look at me in my eyes. And that's such a common saying here in America, right? Of like, look at me in my eyes because that's how you show respect here. But in India and Pakistan, that's so disrespectful. And there is a terminology in Hindi that's like, how dare you look at me in my eyes? Mm-hmm. Especially if someone's yelling at you, they're like, oh, you dare to look at me directly in my eyes, mm-hmm. even though I'm so much superior Super than you. Super aggressive. Like a challenge. Right, yeah. yeah. So like we abide by like animalistic rules in India and Pakistan. And then in America, you're like, no, look at me in my eye. No matter what, if I'm yelling at you, if I'm happy at you, it doesn't matter. Like you got to make eye contact. And so they called my mom in <gasps> and was like, he won't look at me in the eye. And then he keeps calling us teacher and not by our names. So oh you don't gosh. ever call a teacher anything other than a teacher or a professor. England's mm-hmm. the same way. Right? Except yeah. you call miss. M- yeah. yeah. You're not like... Yep. Miss Smith, just, just hello, miss. miss. And then you call adults by their actual names. So like, yeah, when I came over here, all my friends, when I met their parents, I'd be like, hey, Michelle, hey, John. And everyone's like, you don't <laughs> yeah. do that. And I'm like, why oh, not? Yeah. Like, that's, that's their name. Yeah. yeah. I'm we, like, oh, in the South, you add Mr. Johnny. Mr. John, right. Yeah. yeah. It's just like always that respect. And so, so bad that they called my mom in and my mom had to explain to them that like, that's just culturally disrespectful. And so I had to get retrained as like a three-year-old. Also, who calls in like your three? year old won't look at me in the eye and right. they don't like it. Right. And they, he refuses to call me by my name and just calls me teacher. Like it's, they were just so upset by that. It's also just such a lack of cultural understanding. Oh <laughs> like, maybe the child's not the, like, problem. Yeah. the problem. Right. Yeah. But, and I wasn't a bad kid. I was a shy little kid. So it's not like I was getting in trouble. And even for a good kid, they went out of their way to do that. Wow. Uh, I got in trouble because the teacher didn't like it. Like, I mean, my parents are full-blown British. I was born over there. So we would call things like a trash can is a rubbish bin. Mm. So I'd call it a bin. And they'd be like, that's not a bin. It's a trash can. It's a bin. And they'd be like, no, bin is a word, B-E-E-N. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> Even yeah. in middle school, I was like, I literally can't. So you got to call it trash can. So you, it's weird being an immigrant who goes to another country or any outsider right. who goes to another country, whether you're immigrating or not, you mm. learn to adapt so quickly to fit in. Yeah, yep. Oh, you do. Yeah. What do you call the end of a pencil? The rubber. The rubber, yeah. right? I call it the eraser now. Oh, I used to get made fun of so much for being like, do you have a rubber? Does anyone have a rubber? Oh, yeah. And I didn't even know what the hell a condom was. Kids and people were crazy, just, oh, I'm my sure. God. People would lose it. My teacher thought that I was just being like an asshole in class and disrupting class. <laughs> I just were you need, three? Yeah. I was like, this You're was like, like fifth grade. Like, I hadn't learned yet to call it an eraser. So, like, yeah, people were just not kind to that. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Working in Abu Dhabi, they, I mean, only like something, I want to say 30 to 20 percent of the country is actually Emiratis. The rest are expats working there and living there. So there's a huge British, I mean, it's a former British colony. So there's a huge British population. And I remember going over and it was again, like maybe in my first week, some of the men on staff, which was essentially an entire department 
things were still fairly segregated there. And they're like, why don't you come? It was like they wanted to welcome me and have lunch. So I was like, great, sounds good. And so they had lamb biryani. And I was mm. like, oh my God, I love lamb. And I remember everyone just like died laughing because I said lamb rather than lamb. Oh. I still can't like say it, but like I had this such a hard A and that became like my nickname for the entire time I was there. It was like, hey, lamb. Oh my They're God. like, you sound like Ned so Flanders. Funny. I was like, oh my God, I'm so American. <laughs> You're like, of all the things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like I was trying to be very like conscious of things, but you know, things slip out. So, so speaking of cultural competencies, the next word that we're going to throw at you is Christopher Columbus. Oh, okay. So throughout my travels have had very different, interesting dating experiences and met very many wonderful men. And one of them was when I was traveling around Colombia and I met this very handsome man on a beach and we ended up hitting it off and we sort of like had this fling for a little while and we traveled around Colombia and um, he was the first person to travel solo across the Atlantic and he did it in the route of Christopher Columbus and I think it took him like three and a half months, two and a half months. Don't quote wow. me on this. Now I'm just like making things up, I feel like. But it was quite a while. And so I didn't realize this, but he was kind of like a celebrity at the time. And so I remember like we would go places and people would be like, oh, wow, we like know who you are. And I was just, he was very like humble about it. And he never said anything until so many people asked questions. I was like, what's going on here? Like clearly you've done something. <laughs> are you somebody? Um, yeah. Like in Latin America, he was like fairly well known. So um, yeah, he was a wonderful human being and had done something very exceptional and he's uh yeah i've met many interesting human beings throughout my oh, sure. my travels so he was oh. a wonderful person that leads us to the swedish duke yeah so i also dated a swedish duke and he was also is i'm sure still a very nice person he was a very very sweet person and again i didn't realize he was a duke until maybe several months in and one of my friends eventually told me but he was sort of hanging out in Wait, paris what is with these so these people are basically like celebrities dukes high profile people and yet they're so low-key about it i actually find that incredibly refreshing i think that's what attracted me to these people in that they were so low-key and it was only until later on that i found out perhaps they had some sort mm. of level of prominence but with the swedish guy i think he just sort of wanted a break from all of that and so he went to Paris for a little while and he was just having his own life outside of that and I can understand that I would want to just be a normal human being and um yeah and then I think a Swedish friend of his that we were mutual friends with was like you know blah 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 blah, blah. and then I had to ask him about it and he was like oh yeah, yeah yeah whatever you know and so it was funny he was a very nice guy but I remember we broke up because one day we met for coffee and he showed up and he was wearing um pants with crystals all over them like bedazzled like Swarovski oh, wow. yes okay. yes so <laughs> I was like oh I don't like this so much but I was also like he's European it's okay this is right. fine this is fine and then also can I borrow those <laughs> <laughs> just like I felt like I was very like hipster and like cool I don't know what I thought at the time but I was like this isn't a good fit for me perhaps and I remember my sister was over in France at the time and she came to meet us and she was just like the first thing out of her mouth like I knew it was gonna be she was like what's with your pants <laughs> I was just like don't they don't sound comment like they, on the pants they fit into the back room of that Parisian strip the club strip, a little yeah. better Yes, he was much more at home there. So you I broke think. up with a duke because you didn't like his pants that were covered um, in like gemstones. Just to get it That's correct. Straight. Yes, <laughs> right. that's correct. I was like, I can't handle the pants. I like a woman mm. who knows what she wants and won't settle But adult pants. But Tom, wherever you are, you are a wonderful person. <laughs> I hope you have found your lady with bedazzled pants. Oh, 
<laughs> I was going to ask, is there a crazy etiquette that you've discovered in all of your travels that you're mm. like, this is probably the weirdest one to me? I don't know. I mean, I hesitate to say weird because that's to, all yeah, relative. To, but to, to, you know, our listeners and you and us. I think in the Gulf, seeing men hold hands and also mm. women hold hands as a very like neutral, just friendly thing to do was I guess, shocking for me at first because you just certainly don't see like two macho dudes yeah. walking down the street holding hands here. But you definitely saw that a lot. That was very normal. Um, you also do sort of like a nose kiss. Mm. And so that was surprising to me at first as well. Um, I don't know. There are all sorts of things. It, it's hard to think of. That one's a really funny one. Yeah. So what about you? In, so in India, men will walk down the streets interlocked at their pinkies. Oh, really? And they'll be homophobic. But because of the culture, there's just no space, right? Mm -hmm. So like proximity is very low. And like what we call personal space is like half of what people in the U.S. need. But two grown macho men will go down the street, just pinkies interlocked and like are also homophobic at the same time. And they just don't see that there's a difference in that. God. It's weird. It's the same way in the Gulf. Like there's yeah. quite a bit of homophobia there and also quite a bit of like unspoken things that right. happen that like they don't consider gay. Right. But like right. They're just... from a Western perspective, we're like, huh, I've got to question yeah, this a little bit. So, yeah, there's a lot. Which of... is why it's so surprising to see that when you know the homophobia is rampant and right. then to see two men holding hands, you're like, I thought you guys didn't like this. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't <laughs> understand. I mean, I'm happy that you're doing it. Keep on. Yeah. Right. Right. I was yeah. like, cool. Keep on keeping on. What about royal etiquette? Did you ever have to have any official training? Did any? No, I wish I had. I never did. So I watched a lot and sort of just picked up what needed to happen from there. God, what a good skill. Like if that's a skill everyone should have is to be able to step back and really observe their surroundings and blend in by watching others. I think that's the first thing you need to do when you're in any situation where you mm. feel a little bit uncomfortable is just like take a step back and look at what others are doing. Especially um, with your life, like as this digital nomad yeah. that roams the globe, basically. One country is going to be so different from the next and you're always going to find yourself in these new situations that aren't always sort of tailored to Western ideals and you really have to step back and take mm -hmm. a look. For sure. And I think that, you know, me going to the UAE without any sort of like knowledge of what I was stepping into was not the smartest thing I've ever done. I don't regret it in any way, shape or form, but I'm much more conscious now when I'm walking into cultures that I'm unfamiliar with to do my research and make sure I understand, you know, have some tertiary and yeah. understanding of what I'm stepping into because, yeah, you don't want to offend anyone. And I think it's easy to do that without realizing it especially so. when a quick google search or maybe a more extensive one can give you at least the ground rules exactly right? exactly and i think also learning languages like if you can you know when i lived in indonesia i learned a little bit of indonesian and so mm. i was able to sort of go beyond just like pleasantries and really understand like the culture a little bit more so that helps mm. and i think that's difficult for a lot of people to realize and to think of like perhaps not for you or for any of us in this room who are all children of immigrants or immigrants ourselves but if you grow up in a very westernized culture wherever it is and not really realizing how different other cultures are like sure you know in india they do some things saudi arabia uae everywhere is different but when you really get there on the ground and you realize how different it is mm -hmm. and to what lengths people will go or not will go to be different, but just how incredibly diverse it is. Sometimes you don't know until you get there if no one has ever told you and you've never been exposed to it. Yeah. yeah. My friend calls them cultural liaisons, right? Having mm -hmm. friends who can help you understand yep. other cultures. It's so important. And like you said, languages, right? Even if we can just pick up a couple of words and they know that you've put in the effort, mm -hmm. like it goes so far. There's a Mandela quote where he says, 
says, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to a man in his language, that goes to his heart, mm. right? It makes such a big difference knowing just a couple of words when you talk to somebody of just hello, hi, and thank you even, you know, People feel good that you took the time to learn where they're coming from and where you are. When I was a kid, that was my goal to learn how to say, please, thank you. And I think, where's the bathroom in every language? I think I got to 13. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That's I don't impressive. know if I can remember them all. Yeah. Not the bathroom. I got the please and thank you in 13, not the bathroom part. But I, my theory was if you can go somewhere and even if you don't understand, if you just keep saying thank you over and over again, yeah. like how can anybody get mad at you or please right. over mm-hmm. and over again? Sure, you'll look like an idiot and they might yeah. not be able to help you, but nobody can get pissed off yeah. if you're yeah. just being polite yeah. the entire time. Well, my if you're not comfortable looking like an idiot, you shouldn't travel internationally. Yeah. <laughs> you're just going to look like an idiot. Get comfortable way. looking yeah. like an idiot. See, my friends just want to learn the curse words. That's the first thing any person ever asked me. They're like, oh, you speak more than one language? Mm -hmm. How do I say this blank curse word in any of your languages? That's all they ever want to know. That's fun, but it's not going to get you very far. Yeah, it's not going to get you very far. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, and you're going to use it. And I think we did that. Um, I worked for a radio show full time. And I think we said the word Shiza. Someone said Shiza on the air. And they're like, P.S., that's still an FCC violation. You just cursed on air. You can't say it. Is that true? You can't say foreign I believe so. Because if somebody's listening and they speak that language, it's still saying that bad curse word. It's still cursing is cursing. So you can learn all the dirty words in other languages you want, but just watch out. You're going to use it one day. So not only are you the child of an immigrant, but you have so many different cultures and religions and travel experiences and all these that are part of your background, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that kind of really helps educate you on your advocacy for immigration rights and reform in the United States. And I know you're always working on some cool projects. So tell us what you're currently working on. Many people in Atlanta might be familiar with a nonprofit called El Refugio, and they are based just outside of Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. And they are a hospitality house that that serves the friends and family of men who are detained, um, immigrants and refugees, those seeking refuge rather in Stewart Detention Center. So they had been gifted a entirely new house by Samantha B and TBS. Oh, wow. Wow. So it was a really wonderful gift. I think they went from something like six beds to like now, I don't know, upwards of 15 beds. Wow, um, that's so was, quite a jump. It was a huge jump, really increased their capacity. Um, but they also were sort of left without any sort of like play space outdoors. And so they had this huge yard, this huge new house, but not a whole lot of means to sort of fill it. So I reached out to them and just said, you know, what are you guys looking at for the kids? Because they have so many kids coming to visit the house. Like, do you guys have a playground there? Like, what can we do to sort of make this a comfortable, welcoming space for children? They're like, you know, we have one playground, but it's rusting and they couldn't move it to the new space. So I put them in touch with a occupational therapist who specializes in working with children who have been through trauma and also with children who have autism, who are somewhere on the spectrum. So I put them in touch and then we also got in touch with the artist Yahami Kembron and she's a wonderful muralist and DACA recipient herself. And so we went out initially trying to fund upwards of like $6,000 to just do the minimum of what we could to get this playscape paid for in the outdoor space. And we have uh, exceeded $16,000. That's incredible. It's been wonderful. And so now we've sort of been able to hit everything on the wish list, whereas before it was just, you know, trying to do the minimum because that's kind of all we thought we could do. So it's been really pleasant surprise. And the Stewart Detention Center, for those of you listening, is a big flashpoint now because it's a private prison so far away from the city. And it really impacts, you know, being able to see your relatives 
really has an impact on how quickly you get out of a prison. And so this is so far away. There used to not be any hotels or any place to stay. And so you're driving for hours there and then hours back because you couldn't stay. So this is a really big deal and really can impact the life of a prisoner who can try to get out a lot earlier because they're able to see family and be close to family. I'm just curious, how does seeing family get you out faster? Well, it gives you hope. I think that's something that's very important. There have been a number of men who have died while in detention by suicide or other means. So I think that can't be stressed enough like when you lose hope you that's everything you know if you think you're not getting out what are you living for um but another something else that's really important to mention is that that's also expanded their capacity to house pro bono lawyers who Mm. are working with splc so southern poverty law center so that means that during the week when maybe the house isn't full of loved ones who are visiting their family those beds can be taken up by lawyers doing pro bono work. You know, one of the problems with Stewart Detention Center and many of these detention centers is that lawyers aren't willing to go there to try these cases because it's hours away. So not only is it giving up, you know, what would be valuable compensation, but their time as well. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, two hour drive down there. It's, it's all billable. Yeah, it's yeah. all billable. So, so it's really important. They do a lot of really important work. And so, you know, anyone who's interested, please check them out. Yeah. How can we help? Like if someone's listening to this and is interested in getting involved, can they donate? Can they donate time? Like what I would recommend is reaching out to them directly. You can also go on their website and they are always accepting funds and by all means, funds are always welcome. You know, they also welcome volunteers to come down, especially if you speak another language, be it um, Spanish or another language. They welcome people to come and then meet with the detainees. And so that way you're you're able to interact with someone who's detained um, and they're able to sort of interact with someone on the outside because, you know, many of these men have family who may visit, you know, maybe once a month, mm-hmm. maybe less. Many don't have any family to visit. So even just speaking with someone on the outside is a huge yeah. help. And it's such a big impact that that's a large strategy for private prisons. So if, I don't know the law exactly, but if you're arrested in a specific state, the law states that you have to be held in that state. But with a private prison, because it's just one big entity, they can move you somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so private prisons will often move individuals from the state that they're in to another state and vice versa because it guarantees bed occupancy. And so it guarantees revenue in the private prison system. And that's how much of an impact it makes seeing your family because of that hope and that love that people need to keep up, especially while you're in a place like prison. So if you're interested in getting involved, the website is El Refugio. Did I just butchered that? El no, Refugio. you didn't. No. Okay. Stewart.org. That's E-L-R-E-F-U-G-I-O-S-T-E-W-A-R-T.org. Well, thank you so much for being on and sharing your crazy, ridiculous stories from around the world. My pleasure. Thank and I, I want to sign a copy of your book when it comes out. <laughs> there will be a day. Mark my words. We're going to see you on the Today Show and we'll be like, yes, told you it's going to happen. <laughs> It'll happen someday. I've been writing bits and pieces. So awesome. Maybe I'll do, someday I'll put it together. Love I love it. it. Well, thanks for joining thank us you. today. Thank you, guys. Coming up on the next episode of Real Tall Tales. This pair of brothers had a dream to create something that reminded them of home, but they had one small little problem, nowhere to do it. So what did they do? They constructed an entire ice cream facility out of Legos. Yeah, you heard that right. A place to make ice cream built out of Legos. Check out the story of Ice Cream Walla on next week's Real Tall Tales.